I was given opportunities and I took them and I was given inspiration by others and I think those stories could inspire you to do something with your life. To sit and play on computers will not make you a special person. It might make you cleverer, but it won't make you special. And the joy that you get from the friendships of sport will last you for a lifetime. That, my friend, was Mary Peters. And this is the Inspiration Runners Podcast. Hey everyone, hope all is well. My name's Robbie Marsh and I'm your host, so welcome to the podcast. Hope you're starting again to the Christmas spirit. I've always associated the BBC Sports Personality of the Year Award to this time of year. And for the second week running, we have an award winner on the podcast. This time it's our very own Mary Peters, who is the only female athlete from Northern Ireland to win the award. The year was 1972. It was a troublesome time in Belfast, but through all that darkness shone a very bright light in the form of the Olympic pentathlon winner, Mary Peters. Not only did she win the event by a mere 10 points out of 4,800, but Mary, aged 33, smashed all her own PBs to break the world record. This is a comprehensive journey through Mary's life, from her climb to athletic supremacy to having her life threatened, losing her coach to a car accident six months after Olympic gold, to building the Mary Peters track and setting up a stepping stone charity to help young Irish athletes chase their dreams. Lady Mary Elizabeth Peters has more letters behind her name than the Earl of Kensington, but this year she was very honoured to be named as Lady Companion of the Order of the Garter, which is the highest order of the knighthood that the Queen can appoint. Before we start, I'd just like to give a huge shout out for Mary's latest book, which is an exceptional gift to present to any young person at Christmas. It's called Passing the Torch, and it celebrates some of the most successful female athletes. I'll put a link into the show notes. Sales from the book will raise money for the Mary Peters Trust, which supports young athletes. I got mine from Amazon. It only took a couple of days to arrive, so still plenty of time to order one for Christmas. And who knows, you may just help pass the torch to an inspiring athlete in your own household. One last quick mention, the podcast has been shortlisted for the Spirit of Running Award for the best use of the internet. Had a really good response already and I'd just like to thank everyone that's already voted. I'll place a link in the show notes. We'd be grateful if you could take the 30 seconds it takes to vote as winning would help to bring more awareness and help to pass on the inspiration. Without any further delay, I give you Mary Peters. Originally, just like myself, I came over here when I was 12 years of age. I was 11. You were 11. Could you understand anybody when no. you came over here? No, I had to have somebody sit beside me to interpret. Because <laughs> I came to Ballymena of all places. Oh, and in fact, I was out for lunch with the girl that I sat beside as an 11-year-old at the intermediate school in Ballymena. We went out for lunch. We're still great friends. She was Catholic. I was English. We were both different in a Protestant school. And uh, we've remained friends ever since, which is wonderful. That's excellent. Because you don't realise, we don't realise how fast we talk here, do we? No. Um, <laughs> I couldn't understand the teachers, never mind the pupils. When I first came over, I did a lot of lip reading. It's just like, what? Mm-hmm. And, and I came from Wales, I used to talk like this. And I'm like, what are you talking about, man? But, Sing song. <laughs> but soon got rid of that accent, um, living in Kilkeel in the morns. So I've got a sort of a cross between each. So what, is, what inspired you at the very beginning because back then, um, there wasn't that much around athletics and things like that. No, well, um, Ballymena, Maeve Cal lived in Ballymena. Uh, she had married Sean Cal, she came from Kilkenny. And um, 
Maeve had an athletic club, Maeve and Sean, and I was a good schoolgirl athlete, but nothing special, mm. you know. And I used to run the 100, the 220, do the high jump and long jump. That's all the choice we had at school. And when I was 11, I won the best all-rounder in the school trophy. Okay. Thrilled to bring it home for my mum. And then went to the academy, getting my 11 plus. And they didn't do athletics mm -hmm. until you were in fourth form. So I used to go to the sports days and think, I should be running out there, you know, I wanted to be part of it. Anyway, um, I left Ballymena and went to Portadown then. My dad got promotion. And there the headmaster recognised something special in each of us. And he encouraged me to do athletics because I wasn't playing cricket very well one day. Were you, were you the head girl at that school? I was. I apologise, Mum. So my mum went to that school as oh, well. She? <laughs> she was the head. She's always told me, everybody wants, owns a piece of Mary Peters, you know. I <laughs> <For some> know. <laughs> and that was her little bit was, you know, she was the head girl of our school um, back then. It's strange, the athletics. It hasn't really changed much because when I was over in Wales, I remember we used to do the shot put and we used to do the javelin and the long jump and things like that. I have a 12 year old son and a 13 year old daughter now. They've never experienced any of that no. in their school. No. Um, it was a bit crazy, I have to admit, I can remember running out to the sports field with javelins mm -hmm. and we were like P5, P6, throwing these spears. I know. And you couldn't really trust us with pencils, let alone <laughs> these. Um, but nothing ever bad happened. Um, but that is, is quite a restriction, isn't there? Nowadays, unfortunately, in my opinion, um, because it's the school exam term that mm -hmm. athletics takes part, um, they, they don't have sports days anymore the way we used to. I mean, you used to get points for your house and that was very important. Yeah. And so you'd have been in every sport. You'd have been playing netball and cricket and rounders and doing your athletics and swimming. And we swam in a mill dam where they used to wrap the linen out in Bambridge and the smell of the water was horrendous and it was cold and covered in leaves and you know but you still went and did, took part and I was lucky enough to have the headmaster that recognised I had some talent and my parents who were very supportive and then this former pupil I uh, started coaching the boys and took me on as well and asked me would I like to do a pentathlon. Even back then? Mm -hmm. When I was 16. So that was quite unique. It was. It was the first Northern Ireland pentathlon championships. It was held in Ballymena. Uh, Thelma Hopkins was a, a high jump world record holder um, and she was also very good at the long jump. Maeve Kyle was, and they were both international, Irish international hockey players, and I was 16, and Thelma was first, Maeve was second, and I was third. And so people started saying, oh, this girl has talent. And my dad paid for my brother and I to go over to Birmingham for the British Championships, and I got second. Wow, that was fantastic. At what age was that? 16. And so it... it I knew I was never going to be the best high jumper in the world or the best shot putter. <laughs> but putting the five mm. events together, I, I was strong and I had overall speed and strength, which 
worked for me. Yeah, so you must really have a talent, you know, for it to come into fourth year and not actually be progressing that through first, second, third. It's a difficult year as well because my two kids were amazing athletes, um, but they're 12 and 13, first year and third year. And their minds are starting to switch on to other things. And that's a difficult period because you're trying to keep them connected to it. But if there's not something there sort of holding them, now they're both paid camogie and sort of Gaelic, which is good. And you can see how they're starting to drift in their minds of focusing on other things around that age. And I think it's easier to join a team and have Mm. friendships, whereas athletics, you're isolated on the track and it's cold and wet and windy. And why would you want to be doing that when you could be running around a field hitting a ball or... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. With friends, you know, I have still friends that were in athletics with me but not as many friends, perhaps, as if I'd been on a team with them. Mm. What What do you think held you to that then? Do you think it was just the fact that the buzz that you got from winning that? I think, yes, that was true, but also the support that I got. People mm. came along, like after Kenny McClellan, the guy in Portadown, Maeve and Sean Cow took over some of my training and coaching, and then after the Commonwealth Games in Cardiff in 58, uh, Buster McShane, who had a, a very simple gym in Belfast, wrote to all the athletes and said, look, most of the world's athletes are doing weight training as part of their preparation now. Would you like to come to the gym and do some free sessions? I loved it. Just loved it. So I started training with him and then it was mostly just weight training and then one day he said, I'm going to take you up to Omo Park and we'll have a look at the shop put. I think you can do better than you're doing. And we brushed the shot circle which was full of water and leaves and splashed the shot into the damp ground, you know. And <laughs> It was just that he took an interest and mm. wanted to help me and, and it went from there really. What, what was it you loved about the gym? Like, oh, because cause... you didn't get wet. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but you could do a really good session of weights and you could see your progress. Okay. Because if you were bench pressing, say, 100, and you could put on an extra couple of flangs, you know. And I went up to doing a bench press of 240, you know. But I loved the... I suppose it was just the challenge and the and the strength that it brought mm. to you, you know. Was it much of a community in the gym? Was it the same sort? Of, was it a small gym? It was a small gym, but then it grew and grew like topsy, and and eventually had a one with a swimming pool, mm. you know, that I worked in. But um, some of the girls stayed with me. There was a couple of them. Most of them dropped out and went their separate ways, but I stayed on. No, I don't think any of the boys stayed for very long. But it was just, I think, he used to take this other girl and I for an ice cream after we'd finished our training, you know, and it was a kindness. <laughs> and my parents had all, my mum had died, my father had married again and moved back to England. My brother had gone to Australia, so I was here alone. So having that friendship mm. and going for an ice cream, which seems so simple now, was very important in those days when good, I was a colleague. Good connection then. Yeah. Um, one thing I've noticed through doing the podcast as well, which sort of was lacking in my own sort of athletic background, was strength training. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and people have really struggled with that. I think that's it's been such a boom in running and athletics, and there's a lot of injuries and things like that. Like, and you know, in the marathons and things that like I used to fatigue and take cramps. When I look back now, or after I've done podcasts with people, you know, one theme that is there is the strength and conditioning. That's something you latched onto very early, wasn't it? Um, through the likes of that Buster, Buster. Yeah. Because um, you weren't huge. You weren't like... No, I wasn't a big girl. I was ten and a half stone when I yeah, really that's... started. And I didn't go much over 11 stone at any point, even when I was Britain's best shop putter. Um, no, I, I suppose I came from uh, good stock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my parents weren't athletic but they were they were you know nicely built and my brother who was very keen on sport but never quite made it bless his heart uh, did everything from the 100 meters to the marathon and and all the throwing events and the pole vault and the high jump you know but never quite found his niche but we were we played as kids. We climbed trees. We jumped mm. ditches. We did all the physical things that perhaps brought us natural strength, and we had a good diet because it was the war years, and uh, we had food from the farms mm. around us. You know, I actually ran the marathon in Uganda this year. Oh, did you? Really? And it was quite amazing to see how strong the kids were, yes. how happy the kids were, yeah. and how white and full their parents' teeth were. Yeah. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> um, that's Just sort of what it was like right. back. Yeah. You know, when it was run the marathon, the little kids were running behind me, eating avocados that yeah. had fallen off the tree. Yeah. Um, where I can see the difference when I come home, it was a bit of a culture shock. Yeah. It sort of reminded you back, you know, it was about 30 years ago, you didn't really get sugar and... Yeah. You weren't really sitting on your ass no, all day long. Right. You were. You only came home when you were hungry. That's right. That's and right. And that was it. Like, and mm-hmm. um, like that's even lost in the park now. Your mum coming to the door saying, "Robbie, yeah, Robbie." Right. You know, your parents used to scream at the top of their voice, that's didn't right. they, to try that's and get right. you in. You don't hear that anymore. Maybe get a text. Yeah. Oh well, I, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't because I've only got a Nokia phone. <laughs> what other types of because. We've got some good facilities now. The Mary Peters track is amazing. Like, but you didn't have that luxury back then. What was what other training were you doing, and what was that like back I then? I used Queen's University PEC Centre okay. with Mike Bow. He was given permission because he was a, a student to put a, a pole vaulting box in the floor of the gym, and so the the we would drag the high jump beds and pull for beds out into the corner of the gym and he would run down that side and I would run my Fosbury flop round this side, put the indoor shot onto mats, I um, hurdled indoors because the weather was so awful, the track was full of potholes, I didn't have an option and there was one night I went to Templemore Jim, which is in East Belfast, had permission to put the shot, and it was a leather one, and it burst as it landed, <laughs> and the lead shot went all over the floor, and I had to go around wetting my finger and picking up those lead shots because it would have destroyed the gym floor, <laughs> you know. And went to Jordanstown one night where the PE college was for girls, 
and I had the principal's permission to put down rubber mats to put the shot and it bounced and bounced and bounced and it hit the end of one of the wooden slats and went and I, oh, I thought I was going to die how was I going to commit <laughs> you know but uh, but that's how simple it was because they're quite heavy those shots aren't they what well uh, four kilos is the lady's shot Okay. Outdoors, when I would train with Mike, I would use the 12-pound shot to get my hands stronger. You see, I don't have any flexibility. Try and push those fingers back. Mm. They don't go anywhere. And that's always been the case. Always been the case. My pelvic was the same, so I had to work really hard to get the mobility in my, <laughs> in my hip joint for the hurdles. So I used to hurdle over, um, are they three foot three foot six I think the men do three foot six I did three foot three to get more of a, a stretch going over them I mean I did crazy things yeah. um, was it was it true that I heard a rumour that you used to put the shot into warm water hot water did that in Liverpool with a coach called Dennis Watts who was a national coach he used to put it in, in the oven <laughs> overnight you know the side of a fire so that it would get warm right through because we would be putting the shot if I went to stay with my grandmother and um, it would have been frosty overnight so putting a cold shot against your chin was horrible so he used to heat it and then he'd take a, a kettle of hot water <laughs> I'm wondering should I go and get the mics I'm just sitting thinking <laughs> how, how, many, how many days a week were you training? Um, probably five or six sometimes seven days a week it depended on on where I was at and when you know when I was teaching I didn't I was finished at half three so I had more time when I worked for my coach I was <laughs> finishing at nine o'clock at night and Mike Bull would come down and we'd train from nine till eleven um the facilities were so bad I mean Mike had to train in the shipyard with bags of foam that he bought from a, a cut-offs from beds that were made, you know. But we had fun. I don't think the athletes of today would have the fun that we have had yeah. and to still have, have that friendship. Yeah. I think you can see that carry right the way through your career. Mm -hmm. You know, even when you were in the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games, you could see that. It was like a school sport, not a school <laughs> sports day, but you understood, if you understand what I'm saying there's that excitement and I loved being with people and and um, you know challenging them I never had an enemy on the field I, I had a com competitor but not an enemy <laughs> so in your in your training then did you focus on other things like it was obviously it's not like it is today even transport and things like that getting to training and things like that two buses <laughs> Carrying the shot and my starting blocks <laughs> and the bombs going off in the city, you know, f frequently. And I never turned back, always went on to my training. Um, didn't have a car until well after I'd won my medal, you know. So Don McBride used to pick me up or Buster would have taken me to the track or two buses, as I said. Did you have any guidance on nutrition or... Buster used to read all the nutritional books and he would have worked out my diet. But, I mean, comparison to what they eat today, it was crazy. Mm -hmm. 
like when I, I he wanted me to win the shot in the sixty six Commonwealth because there was no pentathlon, and he encouraged me to put on two stone, and he, he wouldn't believe what I ate to try and do it, and, <laughs> and <laughs> hated it. And then he'd make me go and lie down on a lilo in a safe in the ground floor offices of a um, <laughs> car sales place. And it was full of spiders. And he'd, he'd, he'd thought if I had a good lunch and lay down for a couple of hours, I'd be able to digest it before I went back to work. <laughs> so you were very focused then on doing whatever you possibly could that you thought would add value. And I believed in what he set me to do. And I would never have cheated because uh, I would have felt guilty if I had. You know, yeah. like if he said to me, how much milk have you drunk today? And if I said, you know, I only had a pint, that would be telling the truth. But usually it was two pints because that's what he had told me I should drink. <laughs> <laughs> Your first yeah. Commonwealth Games, you just mentioned it there in Cardiff. Mm -hmm. That was 1958, was mm -hmm. it? Um, what age were you then? Um, you were 18, so 19, 18, 18, 19. Yeah. But I'd only start athletics when I was 16. Yeah, that is yeah. phenomenal, though. So that must have been a really exciting moment in your wonderful. life. Wonderful. And I shared a room with a girl called Bridget Robinson, who was a javelin thrower. And she and I and Maeve and Thelma made up a relay team. And I was the third runner and passed the baton to Maeve, who was the only sprinter. And as she received the baton from me, the English team were breaking the world record at the other end of the track, 100 yards wow. difference. But we only got into the final because somebody else had dropped a baton. You're still in the final, though. You took that. <laughs> <laughs> You'll definitely take that. Um, how did that progress then after that? Because that was... 58, then 61, I went to uh, Amsterdam with... The lady who was the British team manager was called Maria Hartman, and she had a club in Belfast, in sorry in London called Spartan Ladies, and she asked me would I like to become a member. I'd had some problems with clubs in Northern Ireland, so I joined and we went to Amsterdam and I put the shot very well, and that got me on the British team as a shot putter. And I didn't like the event, you know, because <laughs> it's not very ladylike, is it? <laughs> but um, I was an all-rounder, so I could make up points for the the uh, the club. And we had such a good time. And then I was selected for Great Britain against Germany at the White City, 1961. And I was teaching at the time. And... Um, just going and wearing your British vest and competing. I mean, I, I was 11 stone weakling and competing against girls that were 14, 15 and 16 stone. But I just loved it. And um, it changed my life. And then, of course, 1962, the Commonwealth Games were in Australia. My brother had emigrated, so it was a great chance to go and see him. And uh, That was amazing, though, because you started to travel all around the place no I, I mean i nobody had gone that far yeah uh, to australia and that's off the edge of the the world yes you know the world's yeah. flat that's right <laughs> i know, know i know it's gone all the way to australia but like you're in the plane for nearly 30 hours going to perth and you're thinking i can remember the inside of the aircraft had all the wildflowers of australia on the um ceiling 
And I can remember the yellow wattle and the, the proteas and all the, the flowers. It was so impressive to be able to do that and travel. What was it like um, walking off the airplane then in Australia? Hot. <laughs> <laughs> Very hot. And it was, I think it was maybe February. It was uh, I know it was cold at home. And um, just to be able to drink fresh orange juice, we didn't see that at in the abundance that you would get fruit juices now. And, of course, I drank so much of it that I got covered in hives. And the land that they had cleared for the facilities for athletics and also where we lived, because it was a new housing estate, with thousands of flies. And, of course, they all loved me and my hives. It was a nightmare. (laughs) But um, wonderful opportunity. But in the bowl of the stadium... It was over 120 degrees when we were competing. The sweat ran out of the back of my hands and my knees, and that's where it would reveal itself today if I got very hot. What were you competing in then? I was in the shot. I did the high jump. I think that was all. So they had, uh, they had individual sports. They yes, but no pentathlon. Yes. Um, it must have been pretty hard here if you were working. You know, you talked about February. I know what it's like. At the minute, we're going to work in the dark, yes, and you're coming you're home in the, the dark, dark, and then you're trying to go out in the cold mm-hmm. to train. Um, it must be great. I know it's very warm for us in the likes of Australia, but when you're competing against those guys, right, in the heat and all, they're bound to have an advantage. I think that. so. And and because uh, the food was more abundant, you know, in More those days. Yes. As well and things like that. Um, and they could go into the sea and have a nice swim, you know, because Perth's on the coast. It was glorious and it was lovely to uh, then travel to Sydney to see my brother, um, uh, who was, f- he wasn't homesick, but his wife was, and he, she'd had her, her first child. And it was qu- quite dramatic for her because I was able to come home and she wasn't. She was there. They it went. We've got friends in who moved over to Switzerland back then, about 50 years ago. And every time we go over, it's my wife's auntie. She doesn't want to let you go. Yes. Because you're a part of home. And and the voice. There was a man stood at the gates in Perth to see anybody from Northern Ireland because he had emigrated. He'd worked with Buster in the shipyard. And he said to me, Mary, tell me the number of the Sydenham bus. <laughs> And I didn't know because <laughs> I didn't live in East Belfast. And he said, have you a CD bit in your pocket? And peace, the people who are listening to the podcast probably wouldn't know what a CD bit was, but it was threepence, And it was like um, a miniature 50p piece because it had edges to it. Yeah, there's something unique about that because there's people listening to the podcast all around the world now and I get a lot of messages from people who have emigrated mm-hmm. and they absolutely love the podcast but mm-hmm. they just love hearing people's voices from yeah. home and <laughs> um, that progressed then onto the shop that really got you into the olympics then because you were s- no pentathlon got me into the olympics so because 1964 was the first ever right okay and um i i did the hurdles as well in Tokyo, nineteen, we had a reunion recently, fifty-five years since we've been in Japan, and it was glorious to meet up with all the people that have been on the team. And I shared a room with Mary Rand, Anne Packer, and a girl called Pat Price. Uh, 
Mary won a gold, a silver and a bronze and Anne won a gold and a silver and I was fourth. And in the pentathlon, Mary, we were trying to beat the two Russians <laughs> who was Irina Press and Galina Bistrova and I was determined that Mary was going to get a medal because I never thought of myself as a medalist. I wasn't that good. I, w I was good enough to be fourth, but I wasn't good enough to win a medal. Um, and Mary got the silver. And uh, there would be queries nowadays as to whether they were eligible to compete. Yeah, yeah. But I, I don't. I mean, I was happy with my fourth. That was ama amazing. Like that's fourth in the world. Yes. That's what the Olympics may that's mean, right. isn't it? You're the that's fourth right. best in the world. Like, you must have come home. Even getting to the Olympics in itself yes. is an amazing achievement. Um, if you think of the history of the Olympics, when it goes way back hundreds of years mm -hmm. and what it actually stood for, and you're that's in right. that arena competing mm -hmm. against all these other athletes, then to end up fourth in the world, like I can only imagine what that must have felt like. It was amazing, just amazing. And the funny thing was that that there was the Irish boxers who were from Belfast on the same team. You know, Jim McCourt who won a, a, a bronze medal, and I'm talking to him, and somebody said, "How do you know him?" I said, "He lives in Belfast." You know, and Kath, I was in the British McCourt's team. His, um, daughter. Yes, that's right. She was actually on the podcast. So she oh, was. was she? Yes. Um, he was. He was amazing as he well. He was wasn't lovely. He? he was a lovely man, and we've remained friends all these years. You know, and it's such an achievement. Not mm. Northern Ireland has amazing people in it, hasn't it? It has. <laughs> <laughs> the more you talk about it, um, so because you're still quite small. Like, what what do you put? Because at one stage you held the world record for the shot put, did you? No, Northern no, Ireland. No, no. Not that no, because they're all big women that put the shot. No, I I was I had the world record for the vertical jump, um, and I did break in Munich the the world and the Olympic record for the pentathlon, which I still hold, because they changed the event after my Olympics. Yeah, we'll get to that in a wee minute. <laughs> so, that was nineteen sixty four. We were in Tokyo. Yes. Um, I'm enjoying this journey, by the way. Good. That's what my. What came after that then? So that was pretty good. You came back. Did you? What was your mindset when you come back? Like, did you do better than you thought you had? Or oh, did much, you come much better than I thought. Well, because it was an unknown quantity. I did the pentathlon for Britain for more than anybody else. I did 42 over my career. But at that time, I had represented uh, Great Britain against Holland and maybe Belgium at that stage, whereas um, other athletes would be competing in all sorts of events. I had to compete as a shot putter because it was the strongest of my five events, you know. And that's when Buster persuaded me to gain the weight for the next Commonwealth Games, which was Jamaica 66. And I broke the the Commonwealth record for the shot put there the week before the competition. But the night we were to compete, and I had gained all this weight with the one reason of winning the gold medal, there was a girl called Valerie Sloper from New Zealand, came out of retirement, and the men's decathlon javelin was taking part and it had been a bit delayed so it was crossing the path of the shot put arena so our shot put was put back an hour 
and by then I lost the interest and the enthusiasm and the adrenaline and uh, she beat me because you really have to pump yourself up for the mm-hmm. shot but don't you you're, yeah. you're, you're trying to bottle up all that energy aren't you and mm-hmm. then to release it into that shot isn't it and i used to yell yeah as i put the shot and it it was my um it gave me that extra zimph you know do you know when we were in s- school athletics when we were doing it in prime we thought you had to yell <laughs> <laughs> so everybody was just like yeah as hard as you could because we thought that was part of throwing the shot just because of mary peters <laughs> but it used to make people watch the shot put because the scolder would come out of me see usually you'd come off the track and people say oh how do you do today they never saw you because you're down at the corner of the arena they'd watch everything that was happening on the track and maybe get involved in watching the high jump or pool vault but not really the field events so it was a, a means of getting and drawing attention 68 um was the mexico olympics and i there was a pentathlon but because it had been in the previous games more people knew about it therefore more athletes took part and i had an injury um i hurt my ankle in Mexico and didn't perform as well as perhaps I could have or I might have and so I finished ninth in those games and Buster devoted a lot of his time and energy you know he wasn't a paid coach and I worked full-time you know Um, and he was disappointed in my performances and he said look if you want to continue and with my help you're going to have to devote more time and and attitude to it so was he right in saying that yes (laughs) (laughs) he's a good coach then (laughs) he was but uh, you see i just loved the world i loved people i loved competing loved traveling Mm -hmm. i wasn't that worried about winning i mean i I like to win um but uh, it wasn't my main motivation it was just the the enjoyment of it but um you may, you maybe didn't realize your own true potential. I think you know because you were such a good talent <laughs> that sometimes you can drift by That's and true. actually not have that self belief. Well, true. actually, I could be first. I know. And he was somebody that was able to see, see that it. in you. Yeah, that's right. It's like you know what, Mary. Mm-hmm. You know, if you actually knuckled down here, mm-hmm. you could be standing on that podium. So we went to the took the seventy Commonwealths in Edinburgh, and that's where it changed. And it changed because I decided I was going to win that and the shot put. How arrogant was that? So you made the decision, (laughs) this is going to happen. But also for the first time, there were people there, a a number of people who who I recognized in the crowd. So I was being acknowledged as an athlete. And winning two goals was magic. And when I came home... People shared my success and my joy, and I liked it. And it was a home crowd as well. Do you think that it helped? That helps and mm-hmm. lifts lifts yeah. you up slightly. Yeah, but there was also a national coach who coached a girl called Anne Wilson, who was a great friend. And he said to me, uh, "So the last events, the two hundred meters." And I said, "Yes." He said, "Well, Anne will beat you in that." I said, "Do you think so?" 
<laughs> and she was way behind. <laughs> that, it was a red rag It's the worst thing you can say to a competitor. What is flag? You know, and it makes you stand up. And <laughs> um, what are the what are the five sports then? The pentathlon. The hurdles, the shot put, the high jump, the long jump, and the two hundred meters. Yeah, that is, it's amazing how you can get your body to go through that range, mm-hmm. isn't it? Because it's so different, like the strength that you must have needed for the shot put, the flexibility that you must have needed for the hurdles. The hurdles blows my mind, by the way. Mm-hmm. I remember when I'd done the podcast with Kerry, I was mm-hmm. like, but how? Like the coordination that you must you know. need. Because mm-hmm. yours was 60 meters, wasn't it? 80. 80 meters. And then it went to 100. Okay. 100 meters. And, and I loved the hurdles. I had to work hard at it, and and my Northern Ireland record still stands, forty seven years on. That's unbelievable. Which is unbelievable, and and a little girl from Lurgan and I signed a book for her the other day. She's a hurdler, Holly Mulholland, and I said to her, "I hope you're going to break my record," because it's silly to be still there after all these years. That is unique, isn't it? Mm-hmm. How do you, like, over that short period of time, you're going that quick, is it just an automatic thing? Is it like, I wouldn't, no. I wouldn't if I try and <laughs> jump over one, I'm in trouble. <laughs> you you practice so much that it becomes um, second nature to you. It's like driving a car or riding a bicycle. You learn to have the skill of taking the minimal height over the hurdles. And... I used to do so many sprint starts to the first hurdle to make sure that I'd be the first one first. And if you ran a really good hurdle race, you didn't know you'd gone over barriers. It was like a full sprint. And, and I mean, I I was 13 seconds, 13.1, you know. I don't know how. I think that's quicker than my without the hurdles. <laughs> <laughs> being honest. <laughs> But I I did love it because and I did compete for Britain once as a hurdler because somebody got injured and they they had an um, Packer and I had a trial and I beat her so I got to run. Wow. <laughs> um, no, I just loved competing and then the high jump was a big problem for me because I was like a um, I had a style that was a bit like a little donkey going over the bar and. Um, Dick Fosbury changed my life because he brought in the Fosbury flop. That was pretty unique though, wasn't it? Like, because mm-hmm. everybody, I don't know what the right terminology is, but sidestepped over it. Yes. Um, we either did the Western roll or, or the Eastern cutoff or the scissors. And he devised this uh, high jump style where you took off and laid along the bar backwards and landed. And... Buster took me with an old cine camera to Crystal Palace on the 2nd of September, the year before the Olympics. And we just sat and watched and filmed everybody training, doing it and popping over and popping over and popping over. And he said, go and get changed. And I went down and I tried it and I jumped higher than I'd ever jumped before. That's quite unbelievable, isn't it? Isn't it? And so we brought the film back and I wasn't super, you know, my back was rigid. I was 32 going on 33 at this stage, you know, it was silly. 
And we didn't have any high jump beds here in Northern Ireland at that time. So I, I used to do it into a swimming pool, going over backwards. <laughs> oh dear. One side of the pool they're doing the belly flop, and you're on the other side doing the Frosby <laughs> flop. <laughs> True. But it just seemed to work for me, and I think it was because my legs were so strong, mm. I could get up high and then go over the bar. And from doing an average of five foot seven, I ended up, up in that year doing five foot eleven and three quarters at the Olympics. That's unbelievable, isn't it? I'm so. Like that brings us into 1972 then in Munich. Mm -hmm. um, I did a podcast with a lady called Eileen Stewart. I'm going to mention her name because her nickname is Devane. Oh. Um, after yourself. And oh. her favorite moment um, was she started quite late um, into running. And when I asked her what's her, her favorite run, she said she ran the half marathon in Munich. Now she, I don't know what age she is. I wouldn't ask what age she is. You don't ask a lady her age, obviously. Um, but she was of the class of 72. Um, but she said her favorite run she'd ever done was Munich Half Marathon because you finish in the Munich Stadium. Oh, wow. And she said when she came in, what blew her away was this is where it happened. This is where Mary Peters won the gold. Um, it was actually her birthday yesterday. You're going to make me cry. And um, <laughs> she's from Green Island, okay. just up the road. And it was just unique hearing her say that, you know, and that was the impact that that had on people. Mm -hmm. um, but going into the Olympics, like you were ranked fifth. Mm -hmm. Like, were you seen as, did you have belief in yourself that you yes. were going to, yeah. that was a very quick <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, well, I, ha I made myself believe that I could win that. Uh, it was a, because of my success in the Edinburgh Games, I loved it. I loved the adulation it brought and, and the inspiration it could be to others. So I wanted it more than anything. And um, several journalists from <laughs> Belfast took me out for dinner just before I went to Munich. And they said, um, what, what do you think you'll do? And I said, oh, I'm going to win the gold. And they all looked at each other and said, yeah, and I said, no, I am. I'm going to win the gold. And it was the first time I'd actually admitted it, mm. that I, r I wanted it more than anything. And I wanted it for myself, but for Buster, for all his effort. But also, Belfast was going through such a terrible time of the troubles, and I wanted it for the people of Belfast as well. I, I think um, that I'd read, you know, we had a, an awful devastation here a couple of months before that. Mm -hmm. And there was like 22 bombs went off in over like an hour and a half or something, period. Um, and this was almost, in all of that darkness that was happening, it was a little bit of light, mm -hmm. wasn't it? Well, I think this is why this has stood out so much, because it gave people hope. It did. And, you know, I was 33. I was still working full time. I had been fortunate enough to win a scholarship to go to America for six weeks a Winston Churchill Fellowship, and it was sunshine every day. There were a multitude of tracks to train on, different world, uh, different world and, I, and I, I loved, I, I was homesick, <laughs> strangely enough, but I loved having the opportunity, but of course I overtrained because I wasn't used to having all day 
So I hurt my Achilles and um, Buster flew out. He was raging. And he flew out and he discovered, he thinks that the shoes that I was doing the high jump in were catching the back of my heel. They were a bit tight. Threw them in the bin. And I never looked back. And w uh, I gave it a rest for a few days and then it was okay again. Um, but <laughs> I really, really wanted it. At the morning that I went to do the warm-up um, at the warm-up track before the Olympics, um, Heidi Rosendahl, who was the local girl, the German, uh, who was probably favourite because it was on home territory. She, and she had a world record then as well, didn't yes, she? Yes, and she was a long jumper, a really good long mm -hmm. jumper, and a very good sprinter and was in the sprint relay team. But her coach came over to me at the warm-up track and he said... Your favourite, your number one. And I thought, wow. Her coach said that? Her coach said that to me. And I've asked her a number of times since, why did he do that? Because that was me going, wow, yeah. he thinks I'm going to win. And I thought, surely he should have been saying that to Heidi, not me. Because <laughs> as you say, I was fifth in the rankings. That was a strange one, wasn't but it? It was. But you see, I did a very good hurdles race. Um, I had the second fastest time and for a, a, a brief second um, another girl and I held the Olympic record for the hurdles and then we had to go away and relax before you could go and put the shot Was this in the 72? Yes Wh Which was the first sport? What was the first? Which was the first um, event that event you done? hurdles. It was the hurdles. Yeah. Yep. And it was in that one you held yep. the world record for yeah. a split second. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Isn't it? Um, wow. <laughs> so is it a two-day event? Yes. All together? Although I preferred to do it in one. <laughs> get over You're it. all a real fiery Northern yeah. Island woman. Like, <laughs> let me get this out of me. Like, so the hurdles was first. You've done phenomenal in that. Um I haven't got a clue what way the point systems work. Well, it was a it's a very complex yeah. book, like a log logarithm book, of of um. It's based on times rather than positions and things like that. Yes, it? times or or distances, and so if you if you ran a tenth of a second faster, you get another ten right, okay. points. So I did a faster race than I'd ever done in a pentathlon before in the hurdles. And then we had to go and get ready for the shot. And I noticed that the German girls went at the shot circle where we were warming up. And I said to my coach, where are the Germans? And she said, oh, right enough. She went to find them. They'd been given a special warm-up area. And the difference between putting the shot in yeah. a sequence of three and a sequence of 18 was very big. So they were brought back with their tail between their legs. And it's not like me to be like that, but I wasn't yeah. going well, to give an advantage. So. You're getting that heat into those muscles That's and getting right. them working properly. Um. So then I put the shot further than I'd ever done in a pentathlon before. And the danger is if you put it too hard, you fall out of the circle and then it doesn't count. <laughs> and so, you, uh, you know, it was, it was scary because you only have three puts that was one of your strengths going into that so you yeah. must have got a lot of confidence coming off the hurdles yeah. and then you're going into the shot next mm -hmm. so that lined up pretty nicely it did um 16.2 meters if i'm right was it 
I thought it was 16.45, but it might yeah. be wrong. I'd have to check it. I'm not good on maths. <laughs> um, it was over 16 meters anyway. It was. <laughs> which is no, phenomenal. No, it was 16.40, I think it was. Right, okay. I think. And then we had to go back to the village and hang around until the high jump in the evening, which was 8 o'clock at night. Yeah, that's tough, like, because you've cooled down now. That must take a lot of energy out of you, actually, mm-hmm. you know, to build yourself up like that and then to cool all the way back down again. Because yeah. I know what it's like going for a run. <laughs> and then to actually come home, yep. chill out for a couple of hours, and then having have to, to go, go back out again. Out again. You know, I your know. body's a bit. Mm. So the anyway. high jump. <laughs> so. Uh, I'm talking Frosby here. Yeah. And it's boring because they start low uh, for the those who are less good at it. And of course, every point counts. So you want to start at a point that you know you can clear okay. the bar first time. Three attempts at each height. And I was sitting around thinking, I wish I'd get on with this. It'd take forever, How many people's you know? in it? I think there were 18 of us initially. Okay, so yeah. this is a long, drawn-out yeah. process. And say say six of them would start at five foot, and then okay. it would go up five foot one or five foot two. So you join in wherever you want? Yes. Okay. But you had to be aware mm. that you could knock it off three times and lose all your points, and that was you finished. Anyway, I I jumped a few heights and cleared it, and then it came to five foot seven, and I knocked it off twice. Well, you can imagine Ooh. Buster in the stand. You could feel him looking at you. Oh, gosh. And I had given him a yellow anorak so that I could pick him out in the crowd, and he was going mad, and would you get up and run and get yourself motivated again? You know, I could read it, what he was telling me to do from his actions. So I started sprinting around the the uh, D of the track to get the old adrenaline going. I cleared it, and I cleared the next, and the next, and the how next. did you? How did you f- like one more time? Like, were you able to push that out of your mind, or was that was it jumping into your head like before you'd done it? No, I knew I was going to do it. Okay. <laughs> but that was important. But though. that was silly to have knocked it off twice. You know, yeah. I, you just. It was boredom, I think, more than anything, and just lying around waiting for your turn. So then, of you, course, but I you had you did have a PB, didn't you, the week week before yes, that? Yes, at five foot ten. So that give you five foot ten. Like, yes. So that give you a bit of confidence. Yes. Yeah. So five foot seven, you should have just. So oh, Buster was right. Known. Oh, he was. <laughs> <laughs> Again. Absolutely, oh, I was right. <laughs> so then, um, everybody else was finished. And there was a pole vaulter at the other end of the track called Wolfgang Nordvik, who was an East German. And so he would clear a height and there'd be a crowd around. Was, and everybody else had gone home, except a crowd of British people with their Union Jacks stayed at this end of the, where I was. And one of them was Geoffrey Archer, the uh, author. And who had had a B international years ago, and he and a man called Michael Belloff, who was over here recently. How do you remember all these names? Because I've stayed in touch with them. <laughs> over okay, the years. that would help. <laughs> but Michael was over for a conference recently, and we were talking about that night, and and I said, you know, Jeffrey Archer always says I kept the British crowd there, and he said it wasn't him, it was me. <laughs> but anyway, there was, you know, maybe fifty or sixty people stayed, and I jumped each height, and there would be a roar go up. And then Wolfgang would vault and clear the bar, and another roar would go up. 
then it was my turn. Were you bouncing off him a, a bit as well then? Yeah, I'd never been centre stage before. So you can imagine people wanting me to do well was very important. Because this is the Olympics now as I well, do you know? I know. And the stadium was so magical because it had that futuristic roof. And, and the noise, the way yeah, it held the noise it did. in Munich. So you're coming to five foot ten. Like what? How, what were you thinking? Because you you knew you jumped it the week before. I just jumped. I didn't yeah. I didn't analyse it too much. It I sounds like you were just enjoying it. I was. I was, was enjoying being noticed. Yeah. You know, because I suppose that's why we did athletics, to perform, to please other people as well. And, of course, I could hear voices of those I knew in the crowd, you know. Anyway... I I went up and up, and I nearly got the next height, which would have been over six feet. And I'm only five foot eight at all, so I just don't know where it came from, really. Again, it was those strong legs. So it was a personal best that you that jumped. That was another PB. Five foot eleven and yeah. a half. Mm-hmm. Like that must have been wow. Like mm-hmm. what what did you think when you were walking away from that that evening? Well, I kept going running over to the crowd and throwing kisses <laughs> and thanking them. You know, I was so ecstatic. And then, of course, I had to go and be dope tested because nobody believed it. <laughs> yeah, take the springs out. <laughs> your sh- you were wearing Vaporfly shoes. It's been a topic of conversation at the minute, the spring in your shoe. And then went back to the village to have something to eat and um, met up with Buster and he was beside himself. Just mm. He couldn't believe. Three personal bests. It's great when you you can see people's potential mm-hmm. and you, they're not really reaching it or you know what they've got before they know what they've got mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it there you were showing it. Mm-hmm. Like it all came at the right time. If if the competition had been delayed as it was later in the week because of the atrocity, uh, I could have been 10th. I had myself built up to the 2nd and 3rd of September 1972 to be my time. Mm-hmm. What happened that evening then? <laughs> um, because like now you're in contention. Went back to the village to have something to eat. Heard a friend saying, and she kept bloody clearing it and we had to stay. And I said, thanks, Pat. And... <laughs> 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 um, but they had been there a long time, to be fair. True. <laughs> but I had shared many of her successes with her. Anyway, <laughs> didn't have a very good night's sleep because I was so anxious because I knew that my two weaker events were to come yeah. and that Heidi's two strong events were to come. Don't remember what place she was lying at that point, but there was an East German athlete who was the European champion called Berglinda Pollock. And I feared her more than I feared Heidi. And I had said to Buster, I'm going to find Pollock in the village to see what she looks like. And he said, what for? I said, just need to see her. And I found her and I thought, nah, I can beat her. She was soft, you know, she didn't have the, the strength that I knew I had. Anyway, she must have been fairly close because so she all the, was... All those little things help, like, don't they? They do. That visualisation, that self-belief. 
you know, there's you could almost write a list of six bullet points mm -hmm. of ingredients to success. Like, because if you go in there thinking you're not going to win, or if you th if you go in there thinking your competitors are stronger than mm -hmm. you, or like if your coach goes over to your competitor Heidi or to Pollock mm -hmm. and says like you're definitely going to win this, mm -hmm. you know, know all these little I know, things. I know. Just and I found together. an ace of hearts playing card in the street one day before I went to Munich, and I said that's an omen I'm going to win <laughs> and the man who gave me my number which was treble one and I won three of the events um, was called Arthur Gold I Gold that's unbelievable and um, how, how much <laughs> of that do you think is fate I don't know it's, I don't it's know. just so much of it comes together isn't it, isn't it? Um, so the next day then you're waking up you haven't really slept that well what did you have for breakfast Yogurt. <laughs> a friend had uh, who was on the team had said she'd come waken me because I was terrified of sleeping in, and that's why you don't sleep well. It's like when you're going for a plane, you 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 have a restless night. But the bed was like a football pitch, and I had pinned on my numbers the night before and got all my kit ready because I was always paranoid about having the right trainers and everything and the right spikes, and. Um, she f she slept in, so she didn't arrive, but I had some yogurt in the fridge, so I got those. Anyway, we, went, we had to do the long jump, and it was like 9 o'clock in the morning, and you never did, did the long jump at that time of day. And uh, warmed up and was feeling bouncy, and I had a little leprechaun as my marker for where I took off from. And uh, this Russian athlete, who obviously wanted to do well, kept nudging me as she walked past, you know, brushing against me and I <laughs> gave her a really sharp elbow in the ribs which is again out of con out of my personality but she was really annoying me and I think she was trying to unnerve me mm. you know anyway I uh, don't remember the first two jumps but the final jump of my three I jumped five foot uh, no five meters 95 and I really needed six meters in comparison to Heidi, but she jumped out of her skin. Yeah. And she, I, she was very near the world record in her long jump. And then we had S to 6 go... 6.83, you had it written down there. 6.83, you yeah, see, she was phenomenal. Did that worry you going into that event then? Um, it being your weakest. weakest and her strongest, like... Because it meant whatever happened there was going to put more pressure on you in the 200 metres, wasn't it? was. I, d I, d I don't remember consciously thinking she's going to do a good jump. For you know, I, I was thinking about myself. And my foot, if you see the film, is marginally over the, pl over the board, uh, but it didn't mark the plasticine. Um, and they kept looking and looking because they're German and they wanted to help Heidi. But there was no mark on the plasticine, so I got away with the 5.95. So then uh, I missed Buster um, because I had to get a coach back to the, the village. And I went to my room and he sent me a message. We didn't have mobile phones and there was no... F phones in the in the rooms. I don't know how he got me word. I think he must have sent it through somebody else. 
that I needed to run faster than I'd ever run before if I was going to beat Heidi. So I went to my room and I had some food in the fridge and uh, the girl opposite, <coughs> Janet Simpson, who was a very good friend, came over and she said, oh, you've done so well. And I started to cry and she said, what's wrong? I said, I'm just so anxious because I want to win. And she said, you're going to get a medal anyway. I said, I don't want a medal, I want the gold. <laughs> so... Um, I tried to sleep, catch up on my sleep because I'd had such a restless night and the high jump wasn't until 8 o'clock at night so I had to, no, sorry, 200 metres and there was an indoor warm-up area adjacent to the stadium and we went in there to do my warm-up for the 200 and for some reason, and I've no idea why I thought I'd be in the first heat being the fa the, the, the better but of course, they keep the best to the last, so the weaker ones are in the first. So I had warmed up to go in the first heat, and then I said to Buster, stupid, how stupid. He said, just go and lie down on the bed, on the high jump bed, and relax. You're warmed up, you're ready, which I did. And then you had to walk in a tunnel at the side of the track where they kept all the wires for the television companies and the photographers to get to where the um, 200 meters start was and I could hear people's voices that I knew come on let me get upset again come on Mary come on you can do it and um, did a few starts and my blocks slipped in one of the starts and I thought god if that had happened in the actual race fixed it, calm as a cucumber. And all I could think of was Buster shouting, use those arms, because your legs will only go as fast as your arms. And I ran round that bend as though my life depended on it. And I ran 24.08, which was faster than I'd ever run before. That is crazy, though. What, what do you think enabled that to happen like because i watched it last night on, <laughs> did you um i shared it on our page as well i couldn't get over your cadence you're like a crazy person running down the track for a better word well you've you've observed how unsuitable i am and everybody used to say to me why don't you lengthen your stride i said i've tried for 30 years and it never would increase the arm movement of yeah. get me there get me there but of course i could see heidi running away from me because she had a beautiful cadence and style and um so then of course they they didn't have computers the way they do nowadays and so i seen that in the video yesterday yeah, and waiting. um you're sitting there, you're waiting for your time to come up as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then your time come up and you can hear the commentators talking. Well, they, nobody knows what's happening. And that's unique about this because yeah. now they have to go and work out mm -hmm. what the points are. Mm -hmm. And what was the difference in the points? 10. Out of 4,800 points, mm -hmm. the difference between gold and silver mm -hmm. was 10 points. Mm -hmm. um, at what point did you know? Because I seen Heidi had come over and congratulated you. That's when you. I knew when she came to congratulate me. Because I was saying, the times went up and hers was 23.8, I think. And then um, somebody else and somebody else. I was fourth in that race, but it didn't matter about where I came. It was the time that mattered. 
and my time went up and everybody started to cheer and I can read my lips saying I think I may have done it I don't know but I think I may have done it <laughs> and 10 points is like a centimetre in the high jump or a hundredth of a second it was it was that close and Heidi and I talk about it now and I say to her why do you think I beat you <laughs> and she said because you're British and I met her husband who's an American basketball player once in a lift in Prague or somewhere and I said you don't know who I am and he said indeed I do <laughs> <laughs> everybody knows who Mary Peters is and he said, how did you beat my wife? And I said, I needed it and wanted it more than her. Mm, that's brilliant. And um, that was a world record then as well, wasn't it? An Olympic record. Olympic record. And as you said, then they changed it. Instead of running the 200 metres, they introduced the 800, which actually was a better competition. I wouldn't have liked it, but um, if I'd known I had to do it, I would have done it. But, mm. you know... I'd done the, f since I was 16, the 200 metres, so it would have been difficult to have changed That is it. a lot of pain, though, isn't it? The 200 metres is pain. Yeah. It's and the 800 is worse pain, yeah. I would think, you know. Because I'm a long-distance runner. It's mm -hmm. like running the 5K. Mm -hmm. like I, I love running marathons, yeah. and I'm never nervous. No. Let's see if I go stand at the line of a 5K. My knees are shaking because mm -hmm. I know this is going to be hard work. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hurt here, like, <laughs> and the 200 meters. I'm the 800 meters, obviously. It was would have been hard for me because two laps was my warm up. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about then coming out to receive the medal, like, like what? Like, okay, you've won. You that realization sort of it hasn't sunk in, but it's hit you, <laughs> for a better word. But then you have to come back and collect that medal on the podium and listen listen to the national anthem and the whole stadium is roaring like like what eighty thousand people. Well, our um, medal ceremony was delayed because um, David Bedford was running that night and he had said, "Stay at home and watch me win the gold tonight." And it was a Sunday evening. So, of course, people stayed at home to watch him win the gold, and he was seventh, I think. He was beaten. So they were all watching me instead, and so that was magical. And then they had taken Heidi and Berglinda and I to have makeup put on and our hairs um, dealt with, and they had pinned... I had long hair down to my shoulders, and they'd pinned it all up in this exotic style at the back but it didn't look like me from the front so when I saw Buster he pulled all the pins out again <laughs> he didn't want <laughs> me standing on the rostrum with this silly hairstyle but um, the man who presented me with my medal was the Marcus of Exeter who was um, the IOC member from Britain and he had won the 400 hurdles way back in way back when and uh, to stand and hear your national anthem being played is such an amazing experience. Being played for you as well, more to the point. And the only time it was played in that stadium, because I was the only one to win a gold in 72. And then... I don't want to say in Munich as well. <laughs> <laughs> I said it. <laughs> 
But then I was taken to a press conference with Heidi and um, Big Linda, and um, we had to go for dope testing again, and there was champagne, and then I was asked to go and do a BBC interview, and it was Chris Brasher, who was the founder of the London Marathon, and um, Buster was there in the studio with me, and they said, we have a surprise for you. And out from behind a screen came my father. And he had been living in Australia and had said to my brother, I'm going to Munich to see Mary win the gold. And my brother went, ah, ha, ha, you know. And he was there and he hadn't told me. And he had been sitting in the crowd, watching all my activities. You're going to make me cry now. And, uh, well, I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> for, a two, for a podcast, two people are crying their eyes out. <laughs> and he went up to the BBC box and said, um, I'm Mary Peter's father. And they said, show it, prove it. And he got his passport out and they couldn't believe it. it must have been very emotional. It was amazing. And, and you know... <laughs> He had given me the opportunity as a 16-year-old and bought me a sand for a sand pit and a shot put circle that he put down in the field behind the house. And when I kept breaking the Northern Ireland record and the shot was light and I wouldn't stand as a record, he went to the foundry and got me a proper one made. You know, he had given me all those opportunities. But then... Uh, I suppose when he left, I wanted to prove to him that I could do it without him. And for him to come all... And he'd bought the tickets twice. My dad was very canny with money and not <laughs> not the most generous. And he'd bought the tickets and the company went bust and he bought a second set. Like, why? Why? I, I, I don't understand the logic of it all but it was amazing that he was there and he rang my sister-in-law in Australia and she rang my brother who was um, world authority on butterflies and was out in the bush <laughs> gathering, c collecting butterflies and and uh, May said to my brother um, Mary's done it and John said done what? <laughs> because they were so remote from my life you know, they they hadn't cottoned on that it was actually that evening that it was all happening. It's it's quite amazing how that tenth of a second, if you like, or that centimeter, like how different do you think your life? Do you think it'd be in a totally different life? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the fact that I was the only woman that won an, a a medal in the stadium, yeah. and that I was from Belfast, and during made an during that difference. time, as I was saying earlier so, on, you know, it was this light in the darkness. Mm -hmm. And I think that really gave people hope mm -hmm. back at home, didn't it? Like, It's it's amazing the number of people mm -hmm. who even to this day say, oh, well done, I remember that night so well. I was doing such and such a thing. Or I was in Royal Avenue when they brought you down on the back of a lorry. And people have such lovely memories that they remind me of. And people remember things I said to them. And I find that extraordinary, you know, because it's 47 years since... Yeah, there was, you had this um, iconic sort of statement. Um, I went for gold, I got gold, and I bring it back for you. <laughs> like that really sort of has rung through time, hasn't it? It has. And it was it was going down Royal Avenue. The police, uh, there had been a, a threat to my life that if I came home, 
that I'd be shot and that uh, that my flat would be bombed. And, of course, the police escorted me from Munich to Belfast. They were so worried for me. And my dad didn't want me to come home. He wanted to take me to Australia. And I said, no, I'm going home. That's where I work and live and love. And <laughs> they took me down on an open lorry right down Royal Avenue and people hanging out of the windows <laughs> and people throwing gifts onto the... And the police were beside themselves with worry. I didn't have a care in the world. I knew... Well, I'd hoped that nobody wanted to harm me. I had no idea mm. why anybody would want to. But that must have been amazing, coming down in the open truck. Some people coming out and... Because it meant a lot to everybody. Did. Not just... Did you... I'm assuming you wouldn't have realised. Nobody would really realise, you know, what effect and impact that has on other people. You know? No, you did. You, you know, people say to me, had you planned what would happen afterwards? You don't ever think of the consequences of success because you don't know you're going to have it. You know. <laughs> the consequences, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> but you know what I mean? You don't think, yeah. when I've won the Eurovision Song Contest, I'm going to make all these records you don't think the impact that it'll have on other people and then of course uh, when i got to belfast there was the airport was surrounded by barbed wire because of all the the terrorist threats and they had a gold rolls royce lined up to take me into the city (laughs) and um, they'd put banners on all the lampposts saying welcome home mary and they took me on a different route That was amazing. Never saw them. Mm. Um, you went back then, didn't you, to Munich, uh, 40th yeah. reunion with Heidi? Yes. How was that experience? It was amazing. Was that the first time you'd been back? No, I'd been back a couple of times. But it must have been great to go mm. back with her, 40 years on. It was wonderful because um, we were always good friends. You know, we were rivals, but friends. And uh, she speaks a very good English. And so we could communicate very well. <coughs> I was always felt very guilty about the fact that I hadn't been aware of the consequences of the Israelis being murdered by the Black September movement and and hadn't even figured out that Heidi was Jewish. And so I wanted to go back and pay my respects for the people who had died at that time. Um the athletes and coaches and I did but Heidi wouldn't go with me she she had had threats to her life at that time and she'd had to move out the village which I was unaware of so there was a, a kind of a parallel to our lives but we had a wonderful lunch together and reminisced and had lots of laughs and um, renewed our friendship and of course I was delighted that she contributed to my book which is um, yeah, she's in the mm-hmm. book. We'll talk yeah. about that in a minute. Yeah. 1972, you won the BBC Sports Personality of the Year from that. And strangely enough, last week's podcast was with Liz McCogan. Oh, good. Yes. Um, she she won it as well. Yes, she did. Um, I think it was Princess Anne actually won it the year before you, who's mm-hmm. actually a nice accolade in the start yeah. of your book. Um, how was that? That was unique. <laughs> it you was. know, because you always see all these bigs. Like George Best never won it. No, <laughs> <laughs> he came second. <laughs> I remember. Um, I think in Munich it was a bit different. There were only four goals that year. There were uh, 
Richard Mead, who won the individual equestrian event, the three-day event. And then the British team won the team event, so there were four of them. And then there was a sailor, Rodney Patterson. So because mine had been such a story of sheer enjoyment, because everybody loved my... Uh, Persona. Yes. Um, and and because of Northern Ireland, I think I got so many votes. But it was by Radio Times in those days. <laughs> you had to send in a slip to you, vote. You were saying earlier on, um, you know, you hadn't, you don't plan for success. Liz McCogan went to bed after she won it. Um, she was only young, but she said she was training the next day. She didn't yeah. know she was going to win. Yes. Um, so she got the trophy and she went to bed. She she says she thinks she's the only person that didn't go to the after party. Did you go to the after party? Yes. But <laughs> I, I hesitated slightly because the after parties then were just people from governing bodies of, of the sports okay. and and uh, newspaper journalists and, uh, and, and people who had won it previously and the people who were there on the night. It was a small studio. Now there's 3,000 people. So the after party is very different. <laughs> yeah, it's a proper party. But of now. course, uh, Henry Cooper was there, and he was a great friend, a friend of uh, Princess Royal, and and you know we had fun together. The the people who well, we all knew each other because we went to all the dinners. You know, mm. there was the sports writers, person of the year, and the athletic writers of the year, and so we were all going to all the different. That must parties. have been amazing. Like it was <laughs> to meet all these sort of characters. Uh, who became great friends, you know. Yeah. yeah. Your legacy <laughs> sort of started from the moment your foot landed back, unfortunately. Um, but I suppose you were 32 when you'd won that. 33. Um, 33 mm. when you'd won that. Um, so that was... That was quite mature, yeah. Um, but then I raced on the Mary Peters track... Um, Bondaron, who actually sponsor the podcast as well, they do the Minoburn sort of 10k oh, yes, and 5k. Yeah. yeah. Um, so my daughters run around the track, my son, and we've had a photos taken at the bronze <laughs> statue. statue. Um, but that track has brought so much to people, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. 1975, that was a, a long time ago now, the track opened. Mm-hmm. I was actually born in 1975. Oh, wow. Um, but that was that was hard work in itself, wasn't it? I know because Malcolm Brody, who who was the sports editor of the Belfast Telegraph, rang me to Munich. I w- we were having a celebration dinner, and and I was taken to the kitchen to take a phone call from Malcolm, and he said, "We were we'd love to know what you would like as a gift to commemorate your success." And without even thinking about it, I said, "A track." And he said, a what? I said, a track. I said, Malcolm, I didn't have anywhere to train. And he said, oh, okay. (laughs) But little did I know I was going to spend the next three years collecting the money to build the track. Yeah, that was a lot of hard work. And it was, but it was magical because I went to schools and rotary clubs and factory gates. And if people asked me to open a factory or a shop or something, I'd say, well you need to give something towards the building of the track. And after, and then, of course, my coach was killed in a car accident six months after my success. And, of course, I lost the heart. I didn't want to do athletics anymore. But 
Mike Bull was very supportive and some other friends and we decided that he and I would go to the next Commonwealth Games and he would win the decathlon and I would win the pentathlon and that would be a legacy of Buster that we he produced the best two all-rounders in the Commonwealth. And But the other reason I wanted to go and compete again was because I needed to keep the fund going. I had raised £5,000 after the first year. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot of money by today's standards, but it's probably worth fifty to £60,000. And I met John Moore, who owned Little Woods Pools, when I was in Christchurch in New Zealand at the Commonwealth Games. And he said, I know you're collecting money to build a running track. When you go home, write to me and I'll send you some. And he sent me a check for 5000 so it doubled the money I had. That was a good boost. And that turned it round because I was getting depressed because I couldn't work. I was going everywhere to collect yeah. this money. So for three years I did that and we opened the track and it was magical. And with the school children of the district spelt my name on That's the right. track. I've seen that actually. There is actually a YouTube clipping of that. Is there? Um, and they were being asked, you know, how do you coordinate? So someone, some teacher had a, an E and she had 58 pupils to get into this E. So that's how many pupils you had. And you had the commentator or whoever it was, the organizer on top of the hill saying, right kids, no, everybody should be facing this way, not that way. And you're like, what <laughs> on earth? But the nice thing is I meet those people now. Those children are now mature people and they'll say to me, I was in the letter T, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was amazing. Which is though. a memory for them. And that's what I wanted. I wanted the, the whole of Northern Ireland to know the track was there for them. Yeah, 1988, <clears throat> I seen the games that you had and the names that were there. Hmm. In that, like Linford, was it Linford Christie? Yeah. Liz McColgan that we talked about. Fatima Whitbread. Um, Fatima, <coughs> Colin Jackson. Mm -hmm. Like, this is in Northern Ireland. I know. And, and crowds came, 15,000 people came. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot when you think of 80,000 in Munich, but we didn't have a stand. We didn't have anywhere to put them. And we had uh, Zola Bud came and John Walker from uh, that was New Zealand. That was his first European... Was um, it? Yeah, it was the first time he'd been here yeah. to actually compete. And and they were all so happy to be here, despite the fact that the troubles were still... But it's great exposure on. as well to mm -hmm. athletics, wasn't it? Well, you know, it really sort of, it's a bit like London 2012, yes. a little bit. Yes. Our, our, our sort of Northern Ireland version of that, That's wasn't right. it? And Steve Ovette came loads of times, you know. Seb never ran here, but Steve Cram did. Steve was here the night where his first child was being born. They had a, a plane standing by to fly him home. You know, it was magical. It must have been great to uh, like meet all these people and for them all to become your friends. It was 2013 then you got the statue. Yes. Because it refurbished the track, didn't you? Yeah, we were um, hosting the World Police and Fire Games, which was bringing police, fire and prison officers from all over the world. And I was patron. And um, we needed a stand and we needed to expand the track to eight lanes because it was only six. So we applied and unfortunately 
Sports Council were a minute late in putting in the application, so Belfast City Council. I can feel the gripe there. I can feel the gripe. <laughs> Moving on swiftly. Anyway, we we built the tr- the stand, which is wonderful, and then um, John Sherlock had been approached about doing a statue of me for Portadown. And um, he was so excited he got started to do it. And then they didn't get the funding together. So he approached Belfast City Council and uh, they agreed that they would put one at the track. And it was right that it went to the track. Portadown was because I'd gone to school there. But um, I wanted the two plinths so that children could stand on either side of it. The amount of photographs I have taken of people... Like uh, when you have a race there, the amount of phones now we've got phones. Like, can you take my phone? I remember the last time I took a photograph on it, it was a girl doing the 10k in the Bond Run series, but it was her first ever race that she had done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember giving her my buff. So well, here, take that. Um, but she was delighted. She was standing there on that podium with her very first medal. Oh, that's nice. And uh, it's. And it's God, me. It's uh, me in Munich. And, and it so is you in mm-hmm. Munich. You know, you must have been delighted because um, those things can go tar- terribly wrong as well, can't they? <laughs> well, that did go almost terribly wrong because when we were deciding where we would cite the statue, I met with the sculptor and Belfast City Council officials and um, they were going to put in behind the wire where they pavilion is and I said no 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 I'm not going behind the wire (laughs) I want to be overlooking the track so that I can keep an eye on it and uh, I said to the sculptor have you got a photograph with you and he said yes and the photograph was me my upper body and I said what about my legs and he said well well that's all we applied for the money for to do your torso and I said but it was my legs did everything (laughs) (laughs) and he said and these guys were standing there agreeing with me but you know he hadn't done my legs so and I said I'm definitely not going behind the wire and you can't put my torso on a pillar outside you'll have to put me in the pavilion if you're just doing the torso so he reapplied and then did the legs and his agent sent me a photograph one night <laughs> and it looked very chunky, not me at all. And I <laughs> I said, does my bum look big in this? And the guy said, ha, 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 you're being very funny. And I said, no, I'm being serious. <laughs> so John, who had had to do it from a photograph because he hadn't originally realised by doing the legs, had to pare it all down so that it was me. But the lovely thing is I was in a restaurant about a year ago and the man said, come here, do you see this photograph? And I said, oh, God, I suppose it was you when you were in your short pants. And he said, no, come to you see. And it's a beagle dog that he walks around the track every day and it goes up the steps to my statue to get its biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty unique when you have something like that, isn't it? Because there's loads of memories yeah. being snapped at that. And it was unique to have it like a podium for people yes. to stand along. And Seb came to yeah. unveil it for me. 
a friend of mine, um, he does a lot of charity for autism. Mm-hmm. And he always leaves an autism. His daughter's got autism yes. from Newry. Or just outside Newry, he's going to... I'll cut that bit out where he's from. <laughs> get it wrong, he'll kill me. Um, but he always leaves his buff, you know, like if he climbs a mountain, he'll leave the buff, the autism yes. buff. Um, I remember that day leaving the autism buff on your head. Mm-hmm. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's nice. Um, it's, just, it's just an awareness thing, yes, you know, when yes. people see autism. Sure. Um, the Mary Peters Trust then. Yes. You know, that track combined with the, the trust, it really is like a ladder for the youth. It is. It's wonderful. I see um, a gentleman called John Moore from Coleraine approached me about doing a, a trust because I'd had the benefit of the Churchill Fellowship. And he wanted to call it the Mary Peters Trust, but of course we had the Mary Peters track at the time we were collecting money for. So we couldn't have two parallel charities with my name. So we called it the Ulster Sports Trust. And we've been going for now 45 years and helping young sports mm. people and so much success. Olympic, world, European, Commonwealth, Northern Ireland, Irish and British champions. It's wonderful. But in the early days, you know, we were just collecting money for when we had the opportunity. Um, I went to a Rotary Club one night to talk about the track and and my life and um, one of the men said to me, um, people aren't going to like this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And he said, um, have you thought about when you die? And I said, in what respect? And he said, well, George Best died recently and they've set up, a, a going to put a statue of him and they've set up a foundation. And I said, but I've done it in my lifetime. I've built a track and it's named after me. I have a charity that's been going for 40 odd years. So why, what What are you implying? And he said, oh, well, I, I hadn't realized. So when I went back to the trust, the Ulster Sports Trust, I said that this had happened and maybe it was time to change the name. And actually it changed the whole concept Branding is everything, it. isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. And so for 10 years now, we've we've had the Mary Peters Trust. And three years ago, they challenged me to raise a million so that when I'm no longer here, there'll be a legacy and that the charity will continue. And by my 80th birthday in July, I had made the million. So we have that invested to make sure that mm. it won't fade when it, I it's fade. It's so important though, isn't mm. it, for... <clears throat> young people trying to get into athletics because sponsorship and mm-hmm. it's that's the problem with athletics there's not much money in it isn't it well it's for same for every sport really yeah. uh in northern ireland um we don't have the big major companies that sponsor but we've been very lucky in that we we do have the most wonderful young people who are traveling the world as our ambassadors and representing us in the best possible way i just love them and i love to see them being successful and we have way above any other part of the uk in success rates and there'll always be somebody come out of the woodwork that's that wee bit better has something 
talented mm. like George Best that you mentioned and um, Mary Pierce. like Carl <laughs> Frampton <laughs> and all our rugby players and boxers and and um, like we're only a small country just, I know 1.5 you know, million I think it's 97 miles as the crow flies from top to bottom and my biggest disappointment in life and I'd still love to beat it, is the fact I'd love a sports museum to honour all the people that have been successful for us and who have brought people together across the divide. You've so many letters behind your name. <laughs> I don't know whether to call you Lady, Dame. I know you're Dame, Mary by the way. Mary P is Mar- fine Mary by P. me. P, by me. <laughs> they call you like. Mary P. Um, there is a lot of letters but this year you got a really unique, prestigious award. The Lady Companion of the Garter. The Order it's of very, the Garter. Order of the Garter. It's very unique. It is. It's, um, I actually written, I had written down here, it was founded by King Edward III in 1348. And it's the <laughs> oldest, most senior knighthood that can be honoured to somebody. There only is 24 members. There only ever is 24 members, isn't that right? And the Queen and Prince Charles. And the Queen and Prince Charles. Um, And it comes, it's from the Queen herself. Mm -hmm. Um, So you received that this year. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? How did that... I got a phone call out of the blue from the Northern Ireland office one Saturday to say, no, one Sunday it was, to say, would you be around on Monday morning to receive a phone call from Buckingham Palace? And I said, well, I go for my walk from half nine to half ten, but I'll be back by quarter to eleven. And I said, what do they want? And he, she said, I can't tell you. And I said, okay, well, I'll be home at quarter to eleven. And the phone rang, and it was the Queen's private secretary to say Her Majesty would like to bestow the order. Well, I started to shake. Now, I I didn't really understand what the order was, but I know that they parade on Garter Day, which is um, in June, through from Windsor Castle down to St George's Chapel. They're all dressed in that robe that your teddy bear's wearing, don't they? Yes. Every year. And an ostrich feather hat and... And I have watched it on television and I'd been invited a couple of times to go and observe it um, because I knew somebody lived at Windsor, but I hadn't been able to go. So as I say, I shook from head to foot thinking, my goodness, you, it's like you never think what might be round the corner yeah. or might uh, what might evolve from things that have happened. So he said, I s- Will you, will you accept it? And I said, well, absolutely. How could you turn it down? And um, he said, well, I'll be writing to you from Her Majesty. You will have to respond to her to say that you'll accept it. So I did that and sent it off. But my letter didn't arrive. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm a bit ahead of myself here. And I was going to a reception in London to raise money for my trust and when we arrived at Gatwick Airport, the phone, my PA's secretary rang, uh, uh, took a call to say, the letter that Lady Mary is expecting will be delivered to her at this venue at half six this evening. And I said to her, Hell, do they know I'm going to be in so London? James tonight. Bond's going to break through the window and give you this letter. <laughs> oh, my life. You know, I was just amazed and astonished. And so when it arrived, the gentleman who is the assistant 
private secretary to the Queen, seven foot two, and he's from here. And I'd met him a couple of times. <laughs> like, you couldn't miss him because he's so tall. And people would say, what's he doing here? Well, who is that and what's he doing? Because I couldn't tell. Because it's usually announced on St George's Day. But because I had open heart surgery last year, I think they were a bit worried that the shock might be too much for me. So Prince William and Kate were coming across um, for a visit and they announced it. Um, and I I did go, obviously, after I'd had the phone call and looked at Google to see what it was all about. And it has been the most extraordinary event of my life. It was wonderful. I actually did read the history about it this morning. Um, I'm not going to explain your it so I wouldn't remember <laughs> it. Um, but it was to do with uh, the actual garter, um, which something... I'm not going to try and explain it. I'll let, let everyone Google it yeah, themselves. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it is a very <laughs> interesting it, story. Yeah, it and it's indeed. a beautiful ceremony. And uh, there were just two of us uh, installed uh, in the Order of the Garter this year. But two honorees, one was the King of Spain and the other the King of the Netherlands, and we're standing together <laughs> waiting to go in to receive this from Her Majesty. And she puts all the regalia onto you. You know, it's like, it is the most unusual. And my brother but came. It, and it must have made, though, because you, you have worked hard, Mary, to be fair, and you've given a lot back, and you've done it, as you said, throughout your life. It must be great. It must have made you feel like it was all worth it. But I don't do it for reward. Yeah, and, no, we, we understand that. But yeah. for it to be recognised by the Queen, um, not worth it even for you, but worth it for the people that you've helped. Do you know if that makes sense? Well, it's, it is just remarkable. And, and I had a private audience with Her Majesty, which was remarkable too, at Buckingham Palace. And... I just pinch myself every day because I I just uh, I was thinking about Her Majesty sitting there thinking who will I make one this year and like how would that happen yeah. you know and they were all all the members of the royal family who are members of the Garter were so welcoming and so lovely to me. And when you parade, you have lunch after your investiture with all the royal family, and then you parade through through Windsor Castle. And there's loads of people got tickets to go and watch the ceremony. And the uh, um, Lord Salisbury was the other gentleman, and his father and grandfather and great grandfather and great 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 grandfather have all been Order of the Garter. And there was me, this new girl from sport and everybody's shouting my name and he said everybody knows you and nobody knows me <laughs> <laughs> and it was so magical to share it with family and friends but it just goes to show though you know you really do get back in life what you give out it really is that isn't it and closing the loop to that okay. let's talk about the book passing the torch um this is an amazing book now i have to say what inspired that book I uh, was Lord Lieutenant for the city, of the county borough of Belfast for five years. And um, when I get, it was a very busy period of my life because it was also around the London Olympics and, and collecting this two million. And I thought, what am I going to do? 
what am I going to do with myself? Because I've always been busy. And so I thought, <clears throat> I have three books that I have in my head. And I went to buy a book for a friend, and she was a sports person. And there were only four books for women on the shelves in the shop. But there were over a 100 for men, and I thought, that's crazy. We've got to inspire the next generation. And because of the 2020 uh, theme in in Ireland to get more women involved in sport, I thought I've got to do something to inspire the next generation. And because I was privileged to pass the torch at the Olympics to Katie Kirk, um, who then went on to light the cauldron, I thought that was an ideal title. So I wrote to a lot of friends and asked them how they got involved in sport, who was their inspiration, any stories they might have to share with us and um, their successes. And it was an interesting journey because some were quick to respond, some didn't respond at all to my disappointment, and some... I persuaded in the end to contribute. So there's some short stories and some longer stories yeah. of their journey through their sporting So how, how many athletes are in it? Do you know? I think there's over 90. At least? There's, yes, there is. Um, uh, what, what does this say here? It says 178 pages, so it's about 168, so... There's okay. a lot. There are lots. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> you have Princess Anne here who won the BBC's Sports Personality um, the year before you did. She wrote a small piece. I'll just read a little bit out of this. This book is of short inspirational stories from a cross-section of female athletes which will appeal to a wide audience. People can generally be divided into three groups. Those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who wonder what might have happened. That's class, <laughs> isn't it? That's about taking opportunities in life as it well, is, isn't it? It is, and of course she's a sportswoman of success in her own right and her own daughter won a silver medal at the 2012 Olympics, Sarah. But she's our patron of my charity, so she was very willing to subscribe. Um, and you've, this is a great book for me in the podcast, by the way. I'm like, okay, I've got now a world of people I can now knock on the door. Yes. Um, I've already done, as I said, Liz McColgan, um, Kerry O'Flaherty's in here as yes. well. Kerry was telling me the other day, the book was written a few years ago. She's done more since then. So. I know, I know. <laughs> and, and I feel a bit sad that there are some stories that ha there is an expansion to. So I'm thinking about the second edition and I've also been asked about doing one for the boys. Oh, very good. <laughs> but the uniqueness about it is, though, you know, you have loads of all the different types of sports. So you've got, like, Maria Costello, who is a TT champion. Um, she broke, it says here, she's broken up, like, 24 bones in her body. <laughs> oh, isn't she um, remarkable? It was nice seeing Heidi Rosendale. I was delighted she contributed and didn't hesitate. Jessica Ennis. I know. What an athlete. We, that was a struggle to get Jessica to do it because she's so busy and now a mum. Yeah. But uh, she's, there's lovely photographs of her and a nice story. How do you think you'd have compared against Jessica? She's a bit unique, is she? Oh, she is. Now, people, when, when Denise Lewis won her medal in, in Sydney, um, 
one of the newspapers did a comparison, and if she had done the same seven five events as I had, I'd have beaten her, <laughs> and that was in two thousand. Jessica is superior to me in in all of the events except the shot. She's a very special athlete, though. Wasn't Lovely she? athlete. It was an yes. amazing, yeah. amazing Olympics for us. Yes. two thousand and twelve. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting one here, Violet McBride. <laughs> she was my PE teacher. Of course, yes, because she's our glass down Kilkeel. Uh, yes, she is. Um, she was actually the vice captain of the Olympic hockey team. Yes, she was, and she got a special award when I was chairman of the Sunday Times Sportswoman of the Year Awards because she played hockey for Ireland and Great Britain and she also plays golf now for Ulster. Wow. She's lovely and she came to one of my book launches and one delighted to see her. Personality, Sonia O'Sullivan as well, an yeah. amazing Irish athlete. Yes. I'm just named na- Joe Paley. Like oh, she, Joe's story is amazing, isn't it? It's, it? Not, it's not over yet. I know, <laughs> I know, like she's still training. But Maeve Kyle and um, Isabel Woods, who are local in their 90s, both very successful sportswomen and more present-day young people. It's an, I, I find it an absolute amazing book. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get it on Amazon. It takes like two days to arrive. Um, it's a great one for Christmas. To get, I'm going to put a link on the show notes to this. Oh, thank you very um, much. My do- my niece, sorry, um, she just entered a cross country race in Belfast, and she doesn't run, but she came fifth out of a hundred people. Oh, well done. Um, before I go, I'm going to get you to sign this book to her. Yes. Her name is Chloe McLinden, but that's what it's about, isn't it? It really? is. It is. It's a I just want young people to read other people's stories, and they could say, maybe I could try that. I wasn't that good. Honestly, 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 I wasn't that good. I was given opportunities and I took them. And I was given inspiration by others. And I think those stories could inspire you to do something with your life. To sit and play on computers will not make you a special person. It might make you cleverer, but it won't make you special. And the joy that you get from the friendships of sport will last you for a lifetime. Mary, that's amazing. We're going to finish on that. (laughs) I would have talked on there, but you actually just... (laughs) That was such a beautiful ending. I was like, I don't want to spoil that. Oh, well, that's Um, lovely. Just like to thank Mary for her time. I really took the opportunity and enjoyed taking a wander down memory lane. Just one last shout out for her latest book, Passing the Torch. It really is a great Christmas present to help inspire young people and the money raised from it will help those aspiring athletes chase their dreams. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Until next week, stay safe and keep on moving.